for the next two weeks, we're going to be in the book of Acts, uh, me this week and Jeremy next week. Um, and today we're in chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Um, that should be in page uh, 1,599 in your brown ESV Bibles. Um, I'll give people some time to get there. Cool. I'll, I'll just start reading. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word and believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do all this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are to be examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Quite a remarkable story. Um, But it's one of many across Acts which seeks to provide um, a picture of the first church, the early church, um, the first group of believers, the first group of people who believed in Jesus Christ as uh, their son and God. I mean, it's basically a, basically a story of a small minority of people at, at the time who would call themselves Christians, but who exercised massive influence in Israel and the wider world. And it, Acts tells this story of um, this continuing picture that we see. And the author is Luke, and he's writing to a person called Theophilus. I might just call him Theo because I find that a bit of a mouthful now and again. Um, and he's already written to him before in the book of Luke, um, and he's told him why all of this is happening. Um, and the answer is Jesus. He, he goes through the story of who he is, how Jesus, uh, this man from the most unlikely of places called Nazareth, starts this three-year campaign, this three-year mission, telling people that he was God, um, that God had literally come in the flesh, that the Old Testament, who had, which had promised this coming Messiah, that he had arrived, and that was him. Um, and he starts proving it. Um, he starts healing people with miracles. Um, pe- eyes are opened. People are fed in one day, thousands of people in one day by his words. Um, and people start standing up and taking notes. 
But not only that, he starts speaking with such moral authority um, that people have to stand up and say, who is this guy? Um, he wasn't just like the other rabbis who, um, who were speaking at the day. He wasn't just a fraud. Um, he became popular among the poor, um, among many in Israel, and he gathered a bit of a following. But then it comes to a sad end, it seems, when um, he is eventually crucified uh, by the Roman and Jewish authorities. Um, and it seems maybe that's the end. Um, perhaps that's the end of a peculiar, interesting Jewish story. But Luke writes to Theophilus um, that three days later, Jesus' tomb is empty. And over the next coming weeks, um, people from varying different backgrounds and um, uh, people from varying different backgrounds are saying he's alive. We've seen him eating, we've seen him drinking, he's been laughing, he's preaching about himself, and he said that um, he's back again. And this is for us, for humanity. He sacrificed himself on our behalf that human beings can come to know him as God. Um, and that's the story he gives previously. But now we're in Acts, and he's now saying that the message is spreading. People are telling each other, Jews and Gentiles, are finally knowing this God who is Jesus. And whoever you are, whether you're a woman or a man, um, a slave or free, everyone should know about him because um, he's your God. Um, people have their lives changed and transformed. Empires uh, and cultures are changed. Um, and millions years down the line, um, come to know him as Lord and God. Um, so then we come to chapter 4. Um, and in the previous chapter, um, Peter and John have just healed a man. Um, he's been lame from birth, so he hasn't been able to walk for almost 40 years. Um, but now he's running around the temple saying he's been healed by God. Um, people start gathering, and Peter preaches this really compelling message about who Jesus is, why, by what power they're doing this. And it's Jesus. They talk about how he's died, how he's risen again. Um, how he's going to be the judge of the world, how he's going to come back and claim his people as his own, um, and that you should repent and believe in him. Um, earlier on in Acts, earlier on in Acts um, Peter preached a similar message to people, telling them to um, repent and believe, quite unfashionably. Um, but he does so again. He tells them, repent, believe. And he tells them what happens if they do so. Their sins will be forgiven. They're given new life. They'll have peace. And one day the Messiah will return for them. Um, but as we know, the, the, the priests and the Sadducees, they, they arrest them um, and put them into custody. And they were angered at this ridiculous notion that this uh, crucified Messiah was God. And I'm sure you know, as history tells us, whenever the message of Jesus is preached, um, opposition naturally arises. Um, and that's what happened here. Um, but no matter what the religious authorities did, the message just kept on spreading. People started believing it says in verse 4, um, the number of men who had believed increased to about 5,000. Um, now, considering this maybe didn't take into account women, this is an, a massive amount of people in one day to suddenly change their minds and hearts and to suddenly follow this God, this new uh, Messiah, apparently. Um, and we can't shrug this off and um, just call this uh, um, just first century gullible people who, who just bought into this new faith. Um, this was something we can't account for on human terms, um, and God was at work. So, okay, this is all astonishing. Um, this has all happened. Um, they're, they're at this stage now, but what does it mean for us as 21st century Londoners today, um, doing our, you know, living, breathing, working in London, and what does it mean for people around the world as human beings? How does a story so far back in time... Um, bear any relation to us today. And I think it tells us what God is like. Um, I think it tells us about our, our need as human beings and what we need as um, 
uh, and our, our deepest needs, basically, and crucially, how we're to respond, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, and I think it tells us this. There's loads that, we could, that could be said, but um, I'll just bring out a couple of things that, that, that jumped out at me. Um, so the first thing, which stands out and which is obvious from the outset, is how God has intervened in history, in this story, by his spirit and is sovereign over the world. Um, Acts is filled with uh, loads of different stories of God intervening in time, everyday situations, healing people, orchestrating certain events which you just couldn't really explain on human terms. Um, and to a lot of people in society, I think this is, they automatically turn off from this. Um, to a lot of people in society, we're just a bunch of atoms of matter, and everything can be explained simply by scientific explanations, um, and, and that's that. We are what you see. And I think statistics show, I think, recently how, well, year on year, the amount of people who um, believe in a God is decreasing, uh, let alone a God who intervenes in our lives every day, um, and specifically Jesus Christ. Um, And I suppose if you buy this view of reality, then stories like this of Peter and John um, healing people um, and thousands of people changing their minds in one day uh, is probably quite alien to you um, and probably didn't even happen if, if you're a skeptic. But I think the Bible asks us to think again about this and about our view of reality. You see, after all that Peter and John did and the miracles they performed, um, the religious authorities were forced to ask, by what power and in whose name are you doing all of this? Um, They were astonished. They knew what they had witnessed was not normal. Part of the group of the religious folk who were interrogating Peter and John were the Sadducees. And although they were, they were sort of a, a first-century religious group, they're actually quite similar to some of the people we encounter today. Um, they didn't believe in life after death, and they certainly didn't believe in the concept of the resurrection. Um, so this notion that Jesus had uh, risen from the dead and they should worship him was absolutely ridiculous. Um, but their skepticism and lack of belief was challenged when they started to encounter the power of God in front of their eyes. Um, Here was a 40-year-old man, crippled from birth, who everyone would have known, walking to and from the temple every day, seeing him on the ground, perhaps, or or wherever he was sitting. Now he's running around the temple, claiming he's been healed. You can imagine the scenes, the curiosity as to what was going on. Um, Even when they spoke, Peter and John, even when they spoke, um, they spoke of such a profound difference and and authority that people had to um, stand up and listen, a bit like Jesus earlier on. Um, They spoke to thousands of listeners. It says, I think, in verse 13, how... Um, people were shocked to find that these guys were ordinary, unschooled men who didn't have degrees in uh, Judaism or or theology. And they took note that these these guys had been with Jesus. They spoke of real depth and with real power. Um, These men were consumed, possessed by something, you could say, um, but by what? Um, I think the Acts gives us um, an answer throughout the whole book, and in chapter 4, it gives us the same answer. It's God's spirit, God showing up, God showing up and demonstrating who he is. Um, Earlier we were singing about um, the Holy Spirit coming with us and we believe this is God with us, resting with us, that he gives us this spirit, that he lives within us. Um, And it's not something that that is external to us and we we, um, say, wow, this is amazing, God, aren't you great? Um, But it's something he gives to us and he lives in us. Um, God himself was assisting Peter and he assists us as well. And Jesus promised that he would be with us um, if you're a Christian and if you believe in him, he, he would put his spirit in you and he would fill you and he would give you confidence and he'd fill you with love, hope, peace, power um, and this would be him. It says in Luke uh, 14 that that Jesus was was telling the disciples um, I I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. 
Um, after Jesus had risen from the dead and he's about to go up and be with the Father again, he's reassuring his disciples that um, they're not going to be alone, that they don't have to worry. Um, and in doing so, he tells them again about the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, you will receive power. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and uh, sorry, you, you will, I don't know where I am, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, though he was leaving earth, his spirit would remain with us. Um, demonstrating his power and giving us the confidence in who he said and who he was. Um, But crucially, while God is working by his spirit um, in history um, today, and he will be doing so in the future, um, I think something that can give us confidence, particularly if you're a Christian here this morning, um, is how God is in control of time, space, and history. He's he's sovereign. Um, And I think this is what can give us great confidence. And we can see this in history from a few thousand people in Jerusalem who um, believe in this Jesus to thousands of years later, a bunch of Western Londoners sitting in a theater in Waterloo uh, praising Jesus. You can see how God has definitely been working over the last 2,000 years and he'll continue to do so. Um, And I think God's plan has been to bring people from every nation and every background um, to know him. Uh, At the end, in the book of Revelation, uh, which is a bunch of uh, end-time visions and all sorts of confusing stuff, it's filled with pockets of actually things that you can understand. Um, And one of the passages here, which is really clear, is where the writer says, um, he talks of this global reality that will soon come, and actually maybe it's sort of coming a reality by all the different faces I can see in this room, uh, where he says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. You see, the, the story, um, the gospel message wouldn't just stop in Jerusalem, it would spread uh, from city to city, uh, continent to con- continent, um, from people from all different groups, and it's still happening today. Um, people would know who, who God is and that he could be trusted. Um, but now, to a lot of people, all that seems quite interesting, even historically, yes, there's perhaps been a huge sway of religious um, fervency and people are now becoming, uh, people have become Christians and that's great. But we're in 2016 now um, and it looks a bit different, especially in Western Europe. Um, You might not see anything particularly encouraging or um, perhaps you don't see thousands of people flocking to believe in Jesus in one day. We certainly don't see that all the time perhaps in London. Um, There doesn't seem to be a huge desire for people to um, engage spiritually um, and and people's hearts are hard. Um, as we know, we're, we're stubborn people. But I think there is definitely hope. Um, I think it's been a really fascinating year, for example, in how um, a lot of celebrities have um, died, um, even some that I really like. Um, and perhaps it's just got to that stage, you know, a group of people who are of a certain age who then die, and that's what happens. But it's meant that people have um, had to confront the reality of death in the media quite a lot. And in my office place, people are talking about this person that's died and how shocking that is how awful it is. And it's interesting because when we're in the full swing of life, when you're in your mid-20s and 30s, as probably most of this demographic in this room are, um, death is uh, this detached, far-away thing which you don't think about. Um, And often uh, society mocks the concept of of heaven. You have songs imagining there's no heaven and uh, great anthems and things. Um, Basically, society doesn't really take note of what happens after you die. It mocks the idea of that there may be something when you die. But as soon as somebody dies, um, it's interesting, you hear a flood of tweets from people who would never really talk about God, how this person's in heaven and how they're up with the angels. 
and, um, and, all, the, and all these references to the, to the afterlife. And it's really strange. And I think, really, it tells us something about the human condition and how we can't really face the atheistic conclusions um, or the logical conclusions of our atheistic um, this-is-it mentality. Um, I think, to put it bluntly, if we listen to people's, uh, to society's clever people, um, where when we come from nothing, we go to nothing. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Um, after you die, there is nothing, and there's nothing to be too worried about or concerned about. Um, but I don't think anyone can really face up to that. Nobody lives like that. People ask, is there more than what we have? Um, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, King Solomon writes this and he says, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Um, it may seem bleak, but I think people deep down do question, is there more? Um, people yearn for something greater which their current experiences do not actually satisfy and they're wondering, what is my life about? And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus speaks with such clarity and with such great confidence that people will respond to him and people will know that he's God. We live in a society full of um, different spiritual offers and spiritual guidance. There's been a huge rise, for example, in London of meditation and uh, mindfulness. And whatever the ins and outs of that are, um, there is, it's a symptom of people's need. People are burdened. People need more. Um, and Jesus says that people, as a result, will come to him because he is the answer to their problems. Jesus says, um, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Um, in the book of John, another biography of Jesus, um, he says, all that the father gives to me will come, all that the father gives me, they will come to me, and him who comes to me, I will not cast out. So God is active by his spirit. He's involved in history. He's involved in our lives. And he's in control, and people need him, and people will come to him. Um, and that should give us confidence as we um, come and share who he is in, in a world, especially if, if you're a Christian, of course. Um, secondly, um, I think what we see on, a human, on human terms is the courage and, and, Peter, uh, courage and boldness of um, Peter and John in the face of opposition. Now, unsurprisingly, opposition arises against them as they perform this miracle, um, and they preach about who Jesus is, and... Um, in verse 3, um, it tells us that they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Um, it was becoming clear that the priests and religious authorities found their message quite repulsive. It was a challenge to their authority, um, and it was also quite a strange message of a resurrection of this risen Jesus. Um, and the fact that people were flocking to believe in this, it probably wouldn't become such a problem if there weren't so many people who actually took this on and took this seriously. I don't think much would have come about. But people were believing this and it was becoming a problem. And um, whenever the message of Jesus preached, opposition arises. Um, I was looking um, at the just church history and, and how Christians have been persecuted and hounded for their faith. And it's strange because there's nothing particularly unusual in a group of people who, are, who are, might be a minority being oppressed for how they look or what they wear or, or what they believe. Loads of different people are persecuted and um, oppressed throughout the whole world. But what I found here with Christians and with Christianity is it's, throughout history it's unique. It's almost become part of your identity as a Christian to suffer. Um, although we might live here where it's maybe slightly different in a different way, um, to be a Christian historically has meant you suffer. Um, and if we go back in time, nine times, nine times out of ten, if you'll meet a Christian in, a, in any period of time or history, they'll tell you I'm having a really tough time, and it's not great. Um, we're in the book of Acts, and earlier on in Acts, 
there was this Jewish, um, Jewish authority, oppression from Jewish authorities against Christians. Um, towards the end of Acts, you find uh, oppression from the Roman authorities who, who give Christians quite a hard time. Um, and the stories are, are horrendous, what you hear um, of, of Christians being drenched in wax and um, lit as torches in, in, in night parties in Rome or uh, sewed in animal skins and fed to dogs. They were hanged, boiled, scourged, um, impaled. <coughs> oh, sorry, sorry. This, yeah, it's getting to me as well. Um, and um, yeah, it's a tough time. Christians have always had a real tough time. And the situation today hasn't changed. I've got friends um, in the Middle East who tell me about the Islamic State um, and how there's this particularly, uh, there's a targeting of women and women are being raped and tortured and it's really awful what we hear around the world. And I think at this stage there are probably around 100 million Christians who are persecuted for their faith um, today. And that's pretty awful. Now obviously we are detached from this. We live in London and we're fortunate to live in a place where there's freedom of religion and we should praise God for that because that's amazing and that's wicked and we live in this great democracy and where essentially you can pop along on a, Sunday, on a sunny Sunday, Sunday and um, um, worship with people who are like-minded to you and who love you and you love them and you can walk out the building and you don't have to fear for your life um, and that's amazing. But I still think there's a challenge to us and, it's, um, and there's a bit of a, uh, there's, um, an intense struggle inside of us because while... Um, there isn't a threat to our freedom to worship. Um, we do know if we are straightforward and open with our faith, there are consequences. Um, there is a risk of being alienated. You may lose your job in some circumstances, um, lose a friend, you might not get on well in life, an academic position might be lost, or you just might be seen as a bit socially awkward if you like to talk about Jesus often. I mean, even when I was handing out um, salt leaflets uh, like two months ago, and people would, and it was, I think it was Jeremy's. Um, article on the suffering and people saw, as soon as people saw God the looks like I, I, I would initially get a nice smile and as, as soon as people saw God I'd get a dirty look and people walk on and it's that sort of culture that surrounds us at the moment um, I mentioned the statistics earlier about the opposition to faith and that definitely exists and for whatever reason there is this opposition um, but I think God has given us reasons to be um, to be hopeful in the face of opposition um, Jesus says when he gives his famous sermon on, on the um, on the mount, he tells people, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And um, in John again, Jesus is trying to tell them that, look, they, they persecuted me, so they'll persecute you as well. They hated me, so they'll hate you also. If it happened to Jesus, then um, it will happen to us. But I think even more what gives us even more confidence um, is how the message has gone through time and all the opposition hasn't stopped the spread of Jesus and people knowing who he is in all different cultures. Um, so, for example, in this passage, 5,000 people in one day come to know God, even though that the authorities really want it oppressed. Um, and, and, and I think actually one example, I, I read this uh, somewhere. Um, in, in 1950s communist China, Christians were being really hounded out under a, a communist regime. Um, by 1958, the wife of um, Chairman Mao, the leader then, she proudly declared, um, Christianity in China has been confined to museums. It is dead and buried. Um, she died. Uh, their control ended. But decades on, we're in 2016, and there are 90 million plus Christians in China. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, and no one, nothing can stop God's word. 
whatever's going on. And it seems often the, the oppression of Christians actually leads to a further spread of the gospel, which is quite ironic. And I think it's these words of Jesus and this conviction that Peter and John had, which meant they could step out in their faith and be bold. And they were compelled to speak this message. Um, the religious authorities and priests in verse 18, they tell Peter and John not to speak any more of Jesus. Um, but Peter and John's response is amazing. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, um, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we had seen and heard. Um, they had seen and experienced so much of Jesus. Um, they had, he had changed their lives. They were totally transformed by him. They couldn't shut up about him. Um, he was the most important person in history to them. Um, he was the person the Old Testament had talked about for years and for centuries, and he had arrived, and he was here for human beings, and they would not shut up about him. Um, and I think this aspect of the passage throws up a challenge to us as well as Christians, even in um, the Western world in, and in this context that we're in. Um, and it's actually a challenge that um, Jeremy raised when I was texting him in the morning, um, half asleep on my way to work. And he said he gave me an insight into what this passage um, is telling us. And also, um, it's, one, it's a question Paul asks to the Galatian church. He asks this rhetorically, and it's basically, who do you follow, God or man? Who do you follow, God or man? Who do you trust? Is it God or men? Um, and it seems quite binary, quite a narrow negative question. Um, I know a lot of us like um, a third way, nuance, a bit of um, complexi- complexity perhaps to these issues, but it's quite simple. Who do we trust? Um, and it's a real struggle, I know. Um, if you're training to become a teacher or you're currently teaching, you must be careful about how you engage with children or how you speak with children. If you work in the NHS, um, Telling patients about God perhaps is a bit of a no-no and it's probably something you, you wouldn't do or you're encouraged not to do. Or even in your office job, um, the social awkwardness that may arise if you bring up who Jesus is. We face a less intense opposition than people around the world, but I think we, there is more of a danger to our souls actually because um, um, if, if, if we buy into this whole cultural narrative of not speaking, we're then encouraged to shrink from who we really are um, and then we actually lose confidence in, in who God is, and our faith is then snuffed out like a candle. Um, so we, we might not be threatened with death, but um, inside there is still a battle that's going on. And I think Andy wrote a couple of weeks ago in the Salt article about the awkwardness we have in this country about speaking about faith. And uh, whenever the topic of faith or religion comes up, um, there's this cringing embarrassment or people want to avoid the issue. There's that mantra, isn't there? Um, don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table or, you know, the two things I love most, basically. Um, um, and there's that mantra, and it's, and it's a bit weird, and I don't know how, how this has come about, but it's where we are. Um, and obviously, when Andy was writing, he was telling people, um, don't miss out on the most interesting conversations that you can have in life, which are about faith and what defines people. But I think it also works the other way around to us as Christians, not to be scared of sharing who Jesus is, the most precious thing to us, the most important thing to us, the thing that defines, defines how we live, and the choices we make each day, and then to not speak about what defines our choices and makes us who we are is a bit strange. Um, and I think we shouldn't shut up, basically, about him, and we should carry on speaking. And if you, feel, if you have fear about this, I, I, I would encourage you to... Who cares? It doesn't matter. Who do you follow, God or man? I think this is, this is the, the fundamental question. And I'm preaching to myself here as much as anyone else, because I sometimes shy away from this too. Um, but one thing that I, I read recently which really hit me was um, 
um, the book by Larry Taunton. It's called The The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Now, for anyone who knows, Hitchens was like one of the most aggressive atheists this country has ever seen. Um, He was hugely intimidating, intellectually, like a really smart guy, but also socially, uh, he was quite an intimidating guy among people. But the strange thing about Larry was that um, throughout his life, he, he became friends with a number of Christians, and, he, and Christians he had met at university throughout life and who had he, he debated with, he became friends with them. Um, but there comes this point where Larry's writing the book and um, Hitchens is dying of cancer. He died a couple of years ago, still an atheist, but he was, he's dying of cancer. Um, and Hitchens is on his bed and he's talking to Larry and he says, Larry, why don't you think I believe? And Larry's like, oh, um, do you want me to be honest with you? And, and Christopher's, yes, be honest, just tell me, why do you think I don't believe? And Larry straight up tells him, I think the reason why you don't believe is because you value your um, reputation as a world-famous atheist more than becoming a Christian convert and um, believing in Jesus. Basically saying your ego is the problem. Um, and also, you might think, wow, okay, it's a bit of a strange thing to say to someone dying on a deathbed. Um, but later, before Hitchens died, he actually said, if everyone in the United States had the same qualities and care and concern that Larry Taunton did, we'd all be living in a much better society. And I think what Christopher was trying to say about Larry was that he, what he found compelling in Larry was someone who believed what he did and cared enough about it to tell him what he believed and what he thought. Now, of course, there's wisdom in these things, and I wouldn't advise anyone talking to a dying person to maybe be so confrontational or blunt. Um, but I think true courage is this, is being um, able to be honest about who you are and what you believe, uh, no matter what the consequences are and no matter what you're feeling. Um, and I think... This is something that Larry did, that Peter did, and which John did. And I think it's something we should be encouraged by too. um, And we should speak out. And um, if he saved you, then um, why why is he good enough for you and not for anyone else? Uh, Yeah, I think that's that. But um, I think the most striking thing about the passage, um, above all that we've considered, above above God's power, well, it's not above God's power, God God is the best, um, um, but which is, I think, really important and which is central to all of this um, is how there is only one way to know who God is. And this is the central tenet of um, Peter and uh, John's message. It says in verse 12, um, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this was what clearly motivated Peter and John. Um, they, they themselves have been transformed by God, um, they'd seen him, they can testify to who he was. But to them, this wasn't just a historical reality, um, or sorry, this wasn't just an experience that they, that they had, but it was a historical reality that applied to everyone, everywhere, throughout time and space. Whoever you were, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, um, Jesus is the Son of God. And if he wasn't the Son of God, then as Paul writes, um, all of this is in vain, all of this is a waste of time. Uh, Christians are actually supposed to be pitied above all. That's what Paul says, um, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Um, And let's be honest, saying that Jesus is the son of God was controversial back then amongst a group of um, first century Jews, but it's also unpopular today, as we know. Um, There's a film called The um, The Stolen Summer. It was written about 14 years ago, and it's about um, a Catholic boy who's growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, and he becomes friends with a um, terminally ill Jewish boy. And he sees it, and it's, it's done slightly comically, but it's seen, uh, he, he sees it at he, as his role over the next couple of weeks to try and convert this boy to Catholicism. 
Um, so he does all that he can. And the way the film's written, it's, he's seen as very naive, very bumbly. Um, and it's all communicated in this scene where um, he apologizes to the father of, of the Jewish boy. And he says, sir, I have to ask you to forgive me for what I've done to your family and to your son. I've tried to get your son to change and become a Christian. And I know that was a terrible thing of me. Um, it really doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is that you love people. Um, and I think it's the general stereotype people have of those who try to share faith or communicate who God is. I remember when I was at university and I, I was part of the CU and I'd invite people to talks or, um, yeah, I'd invite people to talks or maybe I'd, I'd share if I could who Jesus was. Um, and it'd always come that point in the sermon where the, well, if the person was preaching what they're supposed to, that Jesus is the son of God and he's the only way to heaven. And I'd almost cringe. I'd be like, oh, what's my friend thinking about this? Like, it seems so, even the way he's saying it seems so narrow. And we feel this, don't we, in an age of um, flexibility, apparent freedom, uh, and we're, we're, we have, we're supposed to have choice. We have so much choices in our lives. It can seem narrow-minded to assert that your beliefs uh, are true and everybody else is essentially wrong. Um, so whether it's first century um, Israel or 21st century London, the challenge is still the same. It's going to cause some issues. And the inevitable objections follow. Um, you know, isn't it arrogant of you to presume that you're right and everybody's wrong? Wasn't Jesus embracing of people? And um, doesn't that mean that if, you know, if, if, you just, if you're just a good person and you follow what you believe sincerely, that you'll be all right in the end? Um, and it's become really problematic. And even you even find some Christians who, in wanting to be really open-hearted and, and open-minded, dilute the message, actually, and say, okay, um, it's fine. Jesus is the source of salvation, but you don't have to believe in Jesus to really benefit from his salvation. You don't have to know him to be saved by him. And I think this is a problem, and I, th- and I in fact think this is impossible. Um, to say this, I think we move away from um, what Jesus wanted from us. Um, and I think it's not arrogant at all to assert that there's truth. Everybody stands on a truth claim. Everybody's making a claim on reality. Even if you say, I, I don't think we can know who God is, you're making a truth claim. You're, you're assuming something about what reality is like. Nobody's neutral in this. We all live our lives uh, we all, by the way we speak, and more tellingly, by the way we live, we, uh, we all have our lives based on the foundation of something. It's all based on an assumption. We're all placing our poker chips, as it were, on a particular view of life. And I think this is one of the reasons why, again, Jesus speaks with such clarity. Um, one reason why people can't accept this claim um, is that there's this perception that Jesus is um, all-embracing and all-loving. And he is. Um, and I understand this. Jesus spent time with the lowest of the low. He spent time with prostitutes, um, with criminals, the sort of people that um, most people today wouldn't spend their Friday night with, for example. Um, he was definitely embracing. But I think Christ did not mince his words when he talked about himself as the way to true life and as the son of God. Um, there were times when people would call him Lord, Lord, and instead of saying to them, hey, I'm just a good rabbi, worship God, he'd, he'd, he'd affirm them in, in worshipping him. He'd say, That's, you're right, I am, I am God, I am uh, the son of God. Um, he told people that he was the object of true faith. He, he said that his words were the very source of life. Um, he said he was the gateway for the sheep. He, he was recorded in, in John as saying, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Um, on another occasion, the disciples are sort of querying who he is. They're trying to work out the importance of the man that's standing before them. Um, and he says, I'm the way, sorry, I'm the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This whatever slides, believe whatever you want, sort of Jesus, just doesn't exist. He wasn't around. 
Um, and obviously we can lay down some common sense logical reasons why truth is important and why Jesus is, is, is real. But ultimately, I think the reason why this is crucial is because this solves our deepest problem, our deepest need. Um, um, this Thursday, uh, millions of people, maybe the turnout might not be that great, but millions of people across this country will be voting in the local elections. Um, and um, people will be voting for councillors. I think in London, you've got the mayoral race between uh, Sadiq Khan and Zach Goldsmith. Um, and people will be voting. And being involved in politics myself, I, th- I found it really interesting seeing how we give people this message on the doorstep um, about society. And we offer people these um, solutions to temporal problems, such as housing, education, health, um, and all sorts of other issues, international policies. Um, and we say, look, we've got this program for you. Listen to us. We, th- this, can, this can help you. And I'm doing it myself on the doorstep. Vote, vote, for, vote for this person because um, we're going to do this for you and we're going to do that and we're going uh, to provide you with, with this and that. Um, and what I found is that actually the gospel of, of Jesus is infinitely more important than the education you'll receive, than the well-being, your health, than the housing that you have or that you're provided with. Um, all those things are important, hence why I'm, I'm involved in politics. But ultimately, I think Jesus deals with our deepest problem, and it's sin. Um, Paul, um, a guy who writes almost half the New Testament, he keeps going on about this, um, how it's ruined everything, how it destroys people. It destroys relationships, it destroys societies. Families are broken over um, sin. And we almost associate the word with naughtiness now. It's in adverts, and sin's almost associated with chocolate. And um, Yeah, it's weird. It, and we've forgotten what it means and, and the significance of sin in the world today. The Bible talks about how everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. Um, the world accepts this to a certain, certain extent. There's this mantra, nobody's perfect, um, but it goes a lot deeper than that. When we look at the world, and we can see this, look at all the suffering, the pain, the agony, the unnecessary death, um, millions of people who die unnecessarily, spoiled lives. And I don't think we've learned the lessons over hundreds and thousands of years. Have, has things really improved? Have things really changed? I don't think so. And no matter what our efforts are, whether that's increased education or um, technology or, or medication, which we all have done quite well at, um, it doesn't deal with our problem. None of it deals with it. And the world provides us with um, psychological and um, sociological reasons for the problems we have. And to a certain extent, these things are helpful because it tells us how deeply ingrained our problems are and how complex these things are. Um, But they don't deal with the problem. Jesus does. Um, And I'm tired personally of theories from really clever people telling us that things are going to get better. And it's all down to human reason. And we just need to muster up enough um, energy and and, uh, human hope to to solve our problems. Jesus gives us promises he'll keep. Um, He says he'll heal you. He'll give you peace. He'll forgive your sin. He'll set you on a new path. He, um, he says he'll give you meaning and purpose. Um, but above all, he will defeat the enemy, which is death. Um, this is one thing all of us have in common in this room, that one day everybody in this room will die. Um, it's not a very popular thing to say, but n- nobody that's the thing. Everybody in this room will die, and, and that's the end. And to the world, nothing comes after. We go into nothing. But there's hope as a Christian. Um, It says in the Bible, God so loved the world that um, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And despite all of that, despite the fact we're fools um, and uh, a lot of the pain we we bring upon ourselves as human beings, 
Uh, Christ loves us. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. And um, he sent his son in the midst of our chaos to give us hope and a future. And this is good news because we're not meant to die. We were not meant to die. We were meant to live with God forever and to be alive. Um, and this is important because it, it's not just because um, this is true, but we need this to be true. If When we look at the world, we need this story to be true. Um, and I'm so glad as a Christian, these are not just ideas that I can share and offer to you, but it's a response that's required to an event that happened in history. Um, the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, who died for you and rose again, um, and is the answer to all our problems and, and, and the hearts and our hearts and our, de- and our despair. Um, I was reading, I, was, I watched this documentary earlier in the week about, um, it's a Louis Theroux documentary about alcoholism. Um, and the amount of, and I just, I just, I don't know, I just didn't think it was that much of a big deal. People drink and that's that, but so many people addicted to alcohol and who cannot get off it. I just thought to myself, Jesus is the answer. Like, even if they get back on rehab and they sort themselves out, there's still questions that are not answered. There's still issues which haven't been resolved. And it's only Jesus who can, who can solve that. And despite the cries of some that where can God be in all of this, um, in this world of suffering, God has done something. He's acted in history. He's spoken. Um, he's alive. He's risen again. He, he's the answer to our problems. And one day he promises to come back and to make everything right again. All the untruths, um, all, the, all the lies, all the... Uh, all the evil in the world will be gone. And forever people that love him will live with him. Um, and I think this is the Peter of the center of Peter and John's message. Um, this is what Jesus has done. And this is something we need to respond to as, as people, whoever you are, Christians or not. And I, if you're not a Christian, I'd say um, trust this. Look into this because I think it's the most important thing. If this is wrong, then there's, uh, you've got nothing to lose. But I, I do think it's, it's true, actually. Hence why I'm standing up here and speaking about it. Um, and why I think um, uh, it speaks to us. And if, you're not a, and if you are a Christian, um, I think there is, there's loads. But I think you should ask God to fill you with his spirit, um, that he would be with you every day, and that he's active in your life, um, that you could pray for courage to go out and stand up for him. Uh, it just perhaps by the way you live, making choices to follow him instead of man and um, the world around us, um, and to thank him for what he's done in your life. Of uh, just hearing Naomi again, like he changes people, he changes us, um, and uh, yeah, I think these are things we can all consider. So um, I think um, Danny is just going to go and um, lead us into communion. But as we drink the wine and eat the bread, I think we can um, we can think upon these things. And uh, yeah, I think God is good. Amen.